Chris Brown and welcome to episode 5 of Radicals and Conversation in-house, the podcast series from Pluto Press produced in collaboration with Bookhouse, an independent bookshop located in the heart of Bristol. Every month alongside our regular show we're also sharing an episode that's been recorded on location in Bookhouse as part of their in-house events programme. These events feature authors of some of the most exciting radical non-fiction that's being published today. This month's episode was recorded on the 20th of September. Andrew Murray came to Bookhouse to speak about his new book, Is Socialism Possible in Britain? Reflections on the Corbyn Years. Published by Verso, the book analyses Jeremy Corbyn's tenure as a Labour leader and the prospects for parliamentary socialism in a post-Corbyn Britain. A veteran of the Stop the War coalition, Andrew Murray was seconded to Corbyn's office from the Unite Trade Union, and he offers here an insider's view of the most radical period in Labour's recent history. In the course of the conversation between Andrew and Darren McLaughlin from Bookhouse, you may catch the odd reference to the now former Prime Minister Liz Truss, but that notwithstanding, their discussion feels as relevant as ever. The cost of living crisis and the current wave of industrial action were already underway at the time of recording and have obviously not abated since. Is Socialism Possible in Britain is available to buy online or in-store from Bookhouse. Just head over to bookhousebristol.com for more information. So, without further ado, here are Andrew Murray and Darren McLaughlin on Radicals and Conversation in-house. Thanks to everyone for coming out to attend this event to launch the book Is Socialism Possible in Britain, which is published by Verso today. This event is the third in a series of events that we're running called What Is To Be Done. It just so happens that there's a whole bunch of books analysing socialism and the, what's been happening in this country and the transformations that are occurring in politics and economics the multiple crises that we face, environmental, political, economic, and trying to figure out like where we go from here, what do we do next, which is why we call it what is to be done. So now Andrew is here with his account of the Corbyn years, what happened in the Corbyn years, where it went right, where it went wrong, and where we can hope to go from here. So with that, I'm gonna just allow Andrew to introduce himself and introduce some of the ideas behind the book. So just so you're aware, Andrew, was the chief of staff for Unite the Union. Unite the Union were perhaps the biggest supporters of Corbyn, the Corbyn project and the, and the Labour left at that time. Just as today, most people would say probably that Unison and to some extent GMB are sort of the power behind the throne with Keir Starmer and the Labour Party as it currently kind of constituted. He was also the chair of Stop the War, which is one of the reasons they got to know Jeremy Corbyn quite well, because they would be out on anti-war demonstrations and speaking together in that capacity. And then when Corbyn was elected leader of the Labour Party, Unite seconded Andrew from Unite to go and work with Jeremy Corbyn in the, in the leader's office. So uh, with that, let's have a round of applause for Andrew. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for coming out this evening. It shows that the, the question in the book's title, Is Socialism Still Possible in Britain?, still arouses uh, interest down in Bristol and hopefully in other parts of the country. Now, this book at least establishes one thing, that whoever said history is only written by victors was completely wrong, as, <laughs> as this uh, is a history written in the aftermath of a big defeat, where we're all wondering what happened, what went wrong, and what can we do next. 
the period of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party was an extraordinary episode in British politics, which really no one wants to talk about very much anymore. Or if they do talk about it, it's only in the most uh, banal and negative terms. I quote at the start of the book a comment made by the Financial Times sometime after the 2019 election, describing Corbyn's leadership as a shameful footnote uh, in the history of the Labour Party. So I think it needs retrieving uh, from that sort of attitude. Because we have to remember several things, that the Corbyn leadership inspired a lot of hope amongst a public that had to a large extent become politically apathetic or disengaged from conventional parliamentary politics anyway. It inspired great enthusiasm. Probably 400,000 people joined the Labour Party in the period of his leadership, making it the biggest political party in Europe and bigger actually at one point than all other parties in Britain put together, including the SNP, which is a surprisingly huge number of members. So it had that enthusiasm and in 2017 we very nearly won an election. We took Labour's vote from 30% to 40%. That's the biggest increase between two elections that Labour has secured since the Second World War. And as I keep pointing out, the change between 1935 and 1945 was 10 years and a world war in between. In two years, Jeremy Corbyn got a bigger leap forward in terms of the vote. And that was on the basis of a, a radical platform that broke with the conventions of what you could call neoliberalism, which had really dominated British politics from Thatcher onwards, even in a somewhat diluted form under New Labour. So there was extraordinary potential revealed uh, in the Corbyn years, and that must not be forgotten. I also, of course, then have to look at what went wrong. I've written a previous book, I think there are a few copies here, called The Fall and Rise of the British Left, which sort of analyses the ascent of Jeremy Corbyn. That was written at an optimistic time. It came out in 2019. But now we have to look at what went wrong. And my book tries to move the argument away from all this stuff about personalities and, um, in my view, if you are opposed virulently by the state, by the media, by the majority of the MPs in your own party, the question as to whether Jeremy Corbyn likes spending too much time in his allotment or not is definitely a third-order question. But everyone wants to focus on you know, was Jeremy prepared for leadership? Was he ready? Was he a good leader in conventional terms? I don't particularly want to get into that. I mean, it's fairly clear he was extraordinarily and unexpectedly good at some things and unprepared in other respects. But you have to look at the institutions of economic and political power in this country and how they responded to his leadership to really get an understanding as to what went wrong. He had hardly been in office 10 days when a general was quoted in the Sunday Times, an anonymous general, they can never find out who it was, strangely, uh, saying, uh, if Corbyn goes on like this, we'll all basically launch a coup uh, against him. You had a running commentary from retired directors of MI5 and MI6 saying he was completely unsuitable to be leader. You had the majority of his own MPs basically refusing to accept the democratic vote of the Labour Party membership and working in a sort of symbiotic relationship with the media, briefing each other, whipping each other up. I mean, working in Jeremy's office, and as Darren says, I was seconded there for basically one and a half days a week from my job at Unite, 
was to live under continual bombardment. You never had time to draw breath. You never had time to really do strategy uh, properly. You were continually firefighting. And most of it was so-called friendly fire from your own side. So I think we have to look at all those things as the underpinning basis of the opposition. What were they frightened of? They were frightened particularly of Jeremy's radicalism on international questions. They didn't like the fact that he was breaking with neoliberalism, but I don't think a coup will ever be launched in this country to stop the nationalisation of the water industry. But I think it could be if you start talking about nuclear weapons, about NATO, about wars of intervention abroad, all of which are things that Jeremy has made his political life campaigning against. That was one thing that was very threatening. The fact that he broke with the orthodoxy was threatening as well. I remember the Daily Telegraph having vapours about Ed Miliband on election day. And here's someone some considerable distance to the left of Ed Miliband. And it does threaten those who have benefited from the low regulation, low tax, low rights for workers uh, regime, the privatisation regime, the contracting out regime that has prevailed in this country's socio-economic model really for 40 years or more now. So he was threatening. He was, I think what was also threatening about him was that he was half-rooted in extra-parliamentary politics. He was the one, and the same is true of John Macdonald, always on the picket line, always speaking at demonstrations about refugees, always involved in the anti-war movement. He didn't make a great mark as a backbench MP, uh, but he was known as a campaigner outside. And for conventional politics, politics begins and ends in the Westminster bubble. All the rest of us, we turn up once every five years and vote, and then we leave the stage uh, again. It's a very, very truncated idea of democracy is parliamentarism. And the fact that Jeremy stood outside it, that would be much happier speaking to a demonstration than speaking to a meeting of the PLP, that too, I think, was felt to be threatening. Inevitably, the book has to look at the issue of Brexit. That was, in my view, the main difference between the relative success of 2017 and the collapse of 2019. Now, I know probably no one wants another discussion about Brexit ever again in their lives, so I'm not going to go into that, but I try and analyse it in terms of how Brexit as an issue stands duty for the sort of uh, a transition from a class view of politics into a more identity cultural one, and we've seen the same phenomenon in many other parts of the world. I mean, I know quite well some parts of France that when I went there as a young man were represented by the Communist Party, now represented by the front, the National Front. And, you know, you, you've seen the same story in the USA, in Italy and so on. So Brexit is a particular manifestation uh, of that. And certainly it's my view that the attempt to block the implementation of the referendum decision of 2016 and the fact that Labour gradually got sucked into that and away from its position of 2017, which was to implement the referendum decision in a Labour spirit, that that definitely lost us many seats uh, in the 2019 election. So now we have to look forward and see what we can uh, make of it. I know my friend James Schneider was here recently talking about his book, which I think has pretty much the same ideas as mine. Let's not get bogged down with the question of whether Labour is the vehicle for the future. Many people will say it is, many will say it's not for me anymore, although probably in election time it's the only show in town in many seats anyway. And let's look at how we actually 
build on the spirit of Corbynism in empowering people to change their own lives. I mean, God knows there's enough going on now. In fact, I mean, the Corbyn agenda is more relevant now than it was three or four years ago uh, with this enormous uh, cost of living crisis. So there is enough to get agitating around. And I think the sort of paradox of Corbyn's leadership, and I'll end on this point, was that it was really a product of mass movements outside Parliament. It wasn't a shift in parliamentary opinion that put Jeremy Corbyn there. It was a shift in popular opinion, amongst the Labour Party membership, first of all, that said we need something different, and Jeremy Corbyn's record of campaigning was what made it. He represented the difference. But after Jeremy became leader, so much energy was poured into propping up his position in the Labour Party, quite rightly, it had to be done, that actually those mass movements outside atrophied. What I would like to have seen is a Jeremy Corbyn-type person leading the Labour Party in Parliament and the strikes and other resistance that we're having now at the same time. That would be a real combination uh, that could sustain it. You know, walking on two legs, mass action outside Parliament, including industrial action to defend living standards and a leader who can articulate that inside. That, I think, is roughly what we have to work back uh, towards. And so uh, the answer, spoiler alert, my book is the answer is yes. <laughs> but that's a sort of road read to go on to make that possibility real. All right. Thanks for that, Andrew. Um, so I guess my first question, just to warm up, is how were you politicised in the first place? Like, I don't know if people are aware, but you actually come from an aristocratic background. <laughs> so to get involved in socialist politics... Wikipedia isn't kind to me okay. for that point. Okay. I can't be bothered. <laughs> Actually, I don't come from an aristocratic no. background. Um, I'm, to some extent, uh, I'm slightly the victim of my late father's great interest in ancestry and heraldry and things like that. It's sometimes been a source of slight embarrassment to me, but I loved him nevertheless. But uh, I come from a sort of regular middle class background. I've got no story of suffering in my past, um, but no, it wasn't an aristocratic background. And I got involved in the 1970s when, uh, uh, well, the world was very different, really. The trade union movement had uh, 12 million members and was a great power in the land. Uh, a third of the world was socialist of a form, the Soviet Union and China and other uh, states. And I wanted to do my bit to make the world a better place. I joined the Communist Party in 1976, more or less stayed in it until really, it wasn't so much even Jeremy that I joined the Labour Party, it's the union saying, you're the second most senior official in the union, we're trying to do things here, you have to get on board. So I did, uh, Len McCluskey was quite persuasive. And yeah, so my radicalism goes back to the 70s, which was a more radical time and a much reviled decade, quite unfairly in my memory. Okay, so you've, you've mentioned the fact that you were in the Communist Party for 40 years and then only joined the Labour Party in 2015 at the kind of instigation of Unite, who you work for. So I wonder why you never got involved with the Labour Party before. Did you kind of like disagree with the Labour Party um, or not have any faith in the Labour Party? Well, one thing, I mean, that's about the Communist Party in this country is that it's never really seen itself as opposed to the Labour Party. It's always taken a view that the Labour Party is rooted in the mass organisations of the working class, the trade unions, they founded it, and that therefore 
you can't be in opposition to it. The Communist Party said it had a particular role uh, to play, but I can honestly say I voted Labour in every general election in my life from my teens onwards. It's just it never seemed a particularly fruitful field for me to want to be personally active in as opposed to other things I could do. And for a number of years I worked for the Morning Star newspaper where being in the Communist Party was more or less expected in those days. Not so much now. Um, and then you get into the new Labour period when it's really a most unattractive uh, option. And when I used to be pressed at the Union to join the Labour Party, I said, well, I will if a Labour Party goes five years without invading another country. Uh, well, in the end, Jeremy did sort of call that bluff, <laughs> uh, uh, really. Um, so, I mean, I mean I, and I've had, you know, obviously many close friends who have spent their life in the Labour Party and have done good work in it. And so it's not in any sense of antipathy to the Labour Party per se, but it was only in this relatively narrow period where it seemed compelling that that's something where I could really make a difference. Hmm. So... Why exactly, just to give people a bit more background, why did Unite want to send you in there? Why did Unite back Jeremy Corbyn's leadership? As far as I'm aware, Unite, which for those who don't know, generally considered to be a union on the left wing, in contrast to, for example, Unison, which generally seems to be a fairly right wing union. But Unite were not left wing forever. Like Unite kind of shifted over to the left somehow and, and then ended up kind of being the quite accurate because see my Unite was a product of a merger. The part I came from was the Transport and General Workers Union, which had been a very strong left-wing culture from really Frank Cousins, who became its leader in the 1950s, and there's Jack Jones, who probably many of you will remember, and uh, then people like Ron Todd. And it had really been a strong left-wing culture, not just in terms of the people at the top, but in terms of the shop stewards, the membership. That then became half of Unite. Uh, the other half was a union called Amicus that was basically the old AWU, the Engineering Workers Union. The TNG was a more dynamic part of it. So it was always on the left and very disenchanted with New Labour, very committed to saying if we're going to be in the Labour Party, we have to change it, and therefore very excited when Jeremy got elected. I don't think Unite played a particularly enormous part in him getting elected in 2015. But we certainly were his main support thereafter, including when the PLP tried to sack him in 2016, and that we stood absolutely firm uh, behind him. But he had the sort of programme that our active members wanted. I mean, to talk about the whole of the membership is unrealistic. I mean, there's a huge diversity of views. But the active membership wanted that sort of uh, program that broke with New Labour, that went back. And that wasn't actually massively radical by historical standards. I mean, in the 1960s, you'd hardly have blinked an eye at it. And so there was a real feeling, here we can get a government that can make a difference, that will operate in the sort of way we and other people on the left want. And we really have to try and fight to make it work. And I mean, Len McCluskey has been criticised sometimes for having been too political and getting too deeply involved in Westminster politics. But his view is that this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to perhaps get a government that will make a difference for ordinary working people in a way which, unfortunately, it's hard to anticipate a Keir Starmer government doing as things stand. So let's get behind it. I suppose, as someone who was in the Communist Party for a long time, like I don't know the British Communist Party in particular, but like the Communist Party, the ideology of Marxist-Leninism doesn't agree with the concepts of like a kind of reformist 
evolutionary parliamentary road to socialism and believes that you need to have a radical break and revolution of some sort. Is that something that you believe or believed and has your thinking changed or evolved in any way? Well, the British Communist Party for a very, very long time, longer than I was a member, certainly longer than I've been alive, has actually had a more nuanced view of this, that the idea of reproducing the Russian Revolution in Britain just wasn't plausible. And uh, therefore, you had a strategy, really from the early 50s onwards, that saw Parliament uh, and the left-wing Labour Party as critical, but not sufficient on their own. Without the sort of mass activity of ordinary people, you'll never get socialism. Socialism will never just be voted through by an act of parliament. It has to come from the people. But the idea for me that you'd have any socialism that wasn't at least ratified by parliament uh, and maintained by democracy and resting on the consent of the majority of the people, that I think is unreal in British circumstances. Uh, and you know, you would hope that that process when we get there, will be as peaceful as possible. But that obviously doesn't just depend on one side of the equation. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, in the book, you kind of illustrate and discuss the differences between the Labour Party under Corbyn in the 2017 election and then going into the 2019 election. Like in the 2017 election, we got pretty close to a victory. It was quite a narrow margin of votes that prevented Labour from getting some kind of minority government in 2017. And then in 2019, there was a rout and the Labour Party got smashed. So can you kind of like explore and discuss the differences in, in how you think the Labour Party approached those two elections and why you think the, the culture changed? Well, as I said, I think the main single issue is Brexit. I know there's other issues as well. I mean, there is an issue of whether... Jeremy was seen as a credible prime minister um, by people. That was, that was certainly there as an issue. But I think that sort of, in a way, relates to Brexit. As Jeremy was the same in 2019 as he was in 2017. 2017, he was enormously popular going around the country, big rallies. He was very good in his interviews on the media. Because we were talking about a, a sort of left-wing Labour agenda focused on meeting people's needs, and we'd sort of parked this very divisive Brexit issue, divisive in terms of people that otherwise would support Labour. You had you know, a passionate end of the, well, most of the Labour Party uh, and its members wanted Remain. Most working class voters, I mean obviously definitions here are a bit elastic, wanted to leave. And then working class voters are still the core of Labour's vote, particularly in seats in the, in the North and uh, the Midlands. And so we managed to sort of dodge the Brexit bullet in 2017. We spent most of 2019 blindfolding ourselves and yelling fire, you know, because we sort of, I think we, and I argue this in the book, that we missed an opportunity in 2017 to sort of somehow find a, a way, even if it involves some degree of cooperation with Theresa May, in getting Brexit over the line, because we needed to get Brexit dead as an issue, or diminished as an issue anyway, more realistically, before we next had an election. If Brexit was still undone and was still the main point of division in politics, uh, we could see we were not going to, uh, we were going to find it very hard uh, to succeed. Remember, even in 2017, we lost six seats to the Tories. We, we won far more. But areas like uh, Mansfield, Stoke, you know, exactly the sort of areas. And we could see the majorities narrowing in a number of other uh, seats like that. So we, we could see 
what was going to happen. But because we didn't take that opportunity when Jeremy's prestige was at its maximum in 2017, when even the PLP was being more or less well behaved for a bit, we just sort of were, thought, well, we'll just leave it to the Tories to screw this up and they'll collapse and then we'll inherit. Well, that didn't happen. By the time you get to 2019, there's no good options left. You know, by that point, you've got half a million people, many of them natural Labour supporters, demonstrating on the streets for a second referendum. And yet, you know, looking at the figures, if we, have, if we go for a second referendum, we're going to lose seats hand over fist. And so that was the problem. I don't think I need to elaborate it much this evening because we all lived through it, that, that agonising period. And let's face it, Boris Johnson's slogan, get Brexit done, that resonated with people, even people who didn't want necessarily the sort of Brexit he was going for. They just wanted this finished, to become a national torment. And we went into the election with a policy of saying, we'll have another negotiation with Brussels, and then we'll put that to a referendum, but Remain will be the other option in, in the referendum. And then virtually all the front bench say, we're not going to vote for the new deal we're going to negotiate. We're going to vote for Remain anyway. I mean, that's a completely hopeless position, <laughs> uh, really. So that, I, I think, is the underlying problem. But it's driven by powerful powerful factors that you have a very strong Labour base in most cities, including Bristol, which is a rather different demographic to the Labour vote in former mining communities, former mining areas, or former industrial cities like Stoke. And holding that all together, it's not impossible. 2017 showed it's not impossible. But it's impossible if you sort of gratuitously piss off, if you'll excuse the phrase, uh, one end of that coalition. I don't know if people are aware, but Bristol West constituency was the most Remain voting constituency in the country. And within that, Bishopston was the most Remain voting ward in the country. <laughs> I was the candidate for the Labour Party for the local elections in Bishopston. And I had come to a Lexit position, basically. I had voted for, for Remain in the first place, not because I was especially enthusiastic about the European Union, more out of disgust with like Nigel Farage and the sort of racist reactionary elements who were around the kind of Brexit campaign. But then after the outcome of that referendum and then after kind of looking into it a bit more, you realise like, I mean, I had started to dislike the European Union way before that because of seeing what they'd done to Greece when Syriza had tried to renegotiate the terms of their debt and the European Union just enforced massive austerity on Greece and like mass unemployment mass hunger, massive cutbacks of social services. So I already was not especially warm towards the European Union. But I came around to a sort of more Lexit position because when I looked into it a bit more, I realised that there was all sorts of... Neoliberalism is baked into the European Union. Like, the point of the European Union is to take certain democratic decision-making out of the realm of democracy and enforce certain things which are to the benefit of international capital and uh, businesses and against the democratic will of the people. So, for example, if you were trying to nationalise an essential state sector like energy, the European Union is there to stop you from doing that because it's anti-market competition rules. Because I was going out campaigning and door-knocking outside of Bristol in places like Kingswood for their local elections in 2019 and Filton and Bradley Stoke, and then I went and campaigned in places like Plymouth and Cornwall and, like, 
Barry in South Wales and places like that. You could just see you're going around talking to these people like they wanted to do Brexit. And like in places like Bristol, in places like London, that's not the conversation we're having. That's not what people want. But they do want to do that. And like we weren't going to be able to just tell them, oh, actually, I don't know if you realise this, but you're wrong and stupid and probably racist. Can you vote for us now? Like that wasn't really a very persuasive argument, I thought. Why didn't Jeremy utilise his massive prestige and power at that instance after the 2017 election to say, right, Brexit's happened, this is what we want to implement, the Tories are offering you this, it's not very good, we'll offer you something better. Is it because, I don't know, I can't remember if it's Napoleon or Mao that says never interrupt your opponent when they're making a mistake. Is it because like, they thought, well, let's just sit back, they're obviously screwing things up, let's just yeah. wait for them to kind of screw it up. That was part of the position, definitely. We had a very fragile government. The May government was neither strong nor stable at that point. We were ahead in the polls. We thought they're so divided that they're going to fall. There'll be an early election. And uh, I think that sort of misjudged the degree to which the Tory party, whatever its other divisions, and this goes for the Democratic Unionist Party even more so, they were going to do everything possible to stop Jeremy Corbyn getting into Downing Street. They weren't going to leave that door ajar if they could possibly help it. The second reason why Jeremy didn't take the initiative was there was a lot of opposition. I mean, not everyone, some people took the same view as I argued for, others didn't quite vociferously. They felt it would be bad to be seen to be helping uh, Brexit over the line at all on principle and that it would risk a backlash amongst the party membership. Certainly the idea of the party membership's views did throughout play a big part. People said, Jeremy, you're a leader who's pledged to empower the membership. The membership want us to stop Brexit. And my view, which all evidence on this is anecdotal really, but it is the answer you get from the membership depends on the question you ask. If you ask the Labour Party membership, do you want to stay in the European Union? Overwhelmingly, Yes. I mean, my view is the same as Darren's, but that's another matter. Overwhelmingly, yes. If you ask them the question, is it more important for you to stop Brexit or to get Jeremy Corbyn into Downing Street? Completely different answer. This exercise was actually undertaken by Lisa Nandy, who was one of those MPs then who uh, had a sort of respect the referendum position. She went to speak at a meeting for Labour Party in Hoban and St Pancras, Starmer Central. And she asked this question at the end. What's more important to you, defeating Brexit or getting Jeremy into Downing Street? Out uh, of 500 people there, all, every single one, voted for the second option. And, and you know, Hoban and St Pancras, Camden, it may not be quite as Remain as parts of Bristol by the sound of it, but it's pretty overwhelmingly Remain. But even there, they could see that that's what they wanted. So I think, in a way, it is a question of trying to lead the party, not just hold up a mirror to its perceived preferences. In the wake of the 2019 election, in the last couple of years, there's been a number of books that have come out in the aftermath of that election. And it's become clear that there was like at least two camps, I suppose, on the left within the leadership. So there was like kind of Corbyn camp, among whom I would list you, Seamus Mill, uh, James Schneider and others. And then I was sort of a Mill McDonaldite camp and there would be people like Jeremy Gilbert, Owen Jones, uh, Andrew Fisher. And I think the most clear distinction between the two 
is that the Corbyn camp were the ones saying no to a second referendum and the McDonald camp were the ones who were saying, yes, we need to do a second referendum. So the question is, how do these divisions occur? I mean, the people in the McDonald camp, I feel like my impression is that they were more invested in the idea of we need to get this over line and that means we need to retain the support of a coalition of left-leaning liberal people and that would include people who might vote Green or Liberal Democrat and we needed to retain those in our coalition. And in the kind of Corbyn camp, the people saying, no, we need to be retaining the support of the working class, people who might not vote normally, people who are going to be voting with their class interests and not on along the lines of kind of liberal cultural issues. Do you think that's a fair representation? Well, it's certainly not entirely wrong. I mean, but I wouldn't overplay it. I mean, you know, the two camps, as you put it, we worked together every, every day. There was a lot of common ground. And we were all grappling with the same problem. It wasn't of our invention. The problem what to do about Brexit was a real problem. It was sitting there and we were all grappling with it. And we all wanted the same thing, to win the next uh, election. And actually, the most powerful advocates of the respecting the referendum position were John Trickett and Ian Lavery, who I don't think would particularly put themselves in the Corbyn camp against a McDonald camp. They were a camp of their own, if you like, northern MPs, very close to the ground in that respect. But also th th this is a problem that exists everywhere with the changes in the working class over the last 50 uh, years, it's, it's diversity, and also changes in the sort of so-called middle class where, you know, when I was young, 80% of middle class people voted Tory. I mean, now that's completely uh, different, you know. So we're in a more fragmented environment and getting your hands around all of that to form a coalition is a more challenging thing. Uh, simple, clear and bold messages are what's needed in, uh, in my view. It's a bit um, of an oversimplification to say there was this division. I mean, of course, John McDonnell had qualities which maybe Jeremy didn't and vice versa. Um, I mean, I, I don't support the idea that had John McDonnell been leader, the outcome would have been terribly different. The Brexit problem would have been just the same as it is. I mean, maybe we'd have heard less about anti-Semitism and more about the IRA or what have you, but I mean, it would, the attacks would have been just as intense. He wouldn't have had any more support in the PLP than Jeremy did. And I think he did an outstanding job as shadow chancellor. But I don't think he called the Brexit issue right. Um, he knows that and we still get on fine. You know. There was one other point of disagreement. I can't remember if it was in your book or if it was in the podcast I listened to that we interviewed with Grace Blakely, which is that John McDonnell, he went on this charm offensive with the City of London to try to kind of persuade them they didn't need to be terrified of a Corbyn McDonnell government. And one thing that he said is that he would not implement capital controls. And that's something you said that you disagree with him on. And like in the aftermath of the election, when I was trying to look at historical examples of, so that I could think, figure out what had happened and what we should do differently, I looked at um, Mitterrand. So Mitterrand got elected on a quite radical socialist programme and when it was going to confront capital, he was going to confront the banks. And then the banks just took money out of the economy. They just crushed the French economy. They raised the interest rates on their borrowing. And through these financial techniques and tools, they managed to basically get him to abandon his programme. So when I understood that, I thought, well, yeah, obviously you need to have capital controls. You just can't have a free kind of financial markets. Um, how, how did John... I wouldn't waste any of such charm as I have on the City of London, personally. And it is time 
the City of London was terrified of a government in this country because they've lived high on the hog for, well, you could say centuries, but certainly the last 40 years. They caused the most enormous crash, which we're still, still reverberating now. Real wages haven't moved upwards across the economy as a whole since 2008, and now, of course, they're going to be moving down again. We've paid a heavy uh, price, and there has to be a better way of organising the economy than doing everything uh, based around what's good for the city. And also, I think that, as you indicate, a radical government in an international capitalist economy will be faced with the problem of capital flight. It did for Mitterrand, as you say, and that was really the last time you had a government in one of the major countries in Europe that had a sort of radical social democratic programme. Governments elected since, whether it's Blair in Britain or Schroeder in Germany or Hollande in France, have really capitulated before they even got to office. There's no pretense they were going to do anything radically different in terms of overall economic management. So you have to be prepared to implement capital controls, in my view, to stop capital flight, which would completely destabilise the pound and destabilise the government. You maybe don't bring it in immediately, but you hold it as a, as a weapon. And in fact, in my previous book, I quote Mitterrand, who actually said to his advisers, after all this was going on and his programme was in tatters, he said, I, I've now realised that in matters of the uh, economy, you're either a Leninist or you do nothing. So maybe to that extent, um, a bit more Leninism uh, would have been needed. And probably actually John MacDonald regards himself as half a Leninist. I don't want to speak for him. But, but I think on that, I mean, I, again, I think it was an unnecessary capitulation. Because the city of London, they're not going to vote for you anyway. And the idea that they would sort of give a benediction to a Corbyn government is never going to happen. Mm. You said that you think that the primary, you kind of alluded to it at the beginning, the primary thing that terrified the British establishment about the idea of a Corbyn government more than its social democratic domestic policies was its anti-imperialist policies, its foreign policy, its anti-war policies. I've seen other thinkers and commentators suggest that in order to get a kind of radical social democratic government in this country, you could do it, but you just need to drop the kind of foreign policy stuff, drop the anti-imperialism. I think part of the premise of Keir Starmer being elected the Labour leader was that he said, I'll basically maintain Corbyn policies with a more professional veneer, more professional kind of outlook, and maybe just drop some of the anti-imperialist stuff. So can you explain why you think that is, that that's the key, that's the reason they wouldn't allow it, and why do you think it's necessary for building socialism that you would retain that? Well, I mean, on why it's key, I mean, these are the symbols of British power. I mean, we've obviously seen sort of a lot of symbolism in the last uh, couple of weeks, but, you know, the core of it is Britain permanent member of the Security Council, nuclear power, always at the United States' right hand when it wants to engage in a criminal or at least ill-advised war, uh, and, you know, linchpin of NATO. And these are very much baked into the identity of the establishment as the sort of, you know, core of what makes Britain a great power. Uh, and that is in itself tied up with the City of London, which has a global role. The City of London's actual weight as a financial centre is the same roughly as Wall Street, but it's attached to a much smaller economy than the Americans, so proportionately it's much greater. It has an interest in a world order where capital can move freely without any impediment, and since Britain cannot be the global policeman that it was in the 19th century, it needs to attach itself to the one that can, which is uh, the USA. So all those are elements. Now why 
uh, is it important. You cannot disentangle foreign policy from domestic policy. I mean, for example, you cannot have good community relations in Britain if you are continually waging aggressive war against majority Muslim countries. That's one example. A second example, a contemporary one. Uh, the war in Ukraine, and I oppose Russia's invasion, to be clear about that, but it's leading to an orgy of militarism. Liz Truss is now saying she wants our arms spending to go from 2% of GDP to 3% of GDP. Some people in the Labour Party are actually asking for even more than that, more like 4% of GDP. Now, take the Liz Truss argument, that's £167 billion that she's going to spending increase on defence. The Royal United Services Institute said that to do that, you'd either need to put income tax up by 5%, basic rate of income tax, or have equivalent cuts in other areas of government spending. Now, no Tory government, in fact, no Labour government is going to put up income tax by 5%. So you'd be looking at an enormous uh, regression to aggressive austerity, uh, again, across the realm of social uh, spending. Uh, enormous cuts. And that is to prop up Britain's militaristic role. When, I mean, you know... Whatever one thinks of Russia, it's not judging by its military performance in Ukraine. It's not really a very potent threat to Britain, except insofar as nuclear uh, weapons. But I mean, that's a different, really a different order of magnitude altogether. So, so these things are uh, completely entwined. And the idea you can have a progressive government in Britain while you are still invading the rest of the world, spending fortunes on uh, military spending, is illusory, quite apart from the point of principle uh, involved, that a government that you know, spent more on the health service here but invaded other countries is certainly not the one I'd want to support. Just continuing this point briefly, like the 1945 government is seen as the high point of the Labour Party, the high point of social democracy in this country, bringing about things like massive building of social housing, the creation of the NHS, the expansion of opportunities for education. But it was, I don't know if a lot of people know this, predicated on the continuation of British imperialism. So, for example, in Iran in particular, the Iranians wanted to take back their oil because there was massive oil revenues there. The Anglo-Iranian oil company was extracting it. And when they tried to take it back, the British and the Americans collaborated to implement a coup. So they overthrew the government so that they could continue to extract that oil, which was led leads eventually through a process of history to the kind of Islamic revolution and the current government they have in place there. So we would say it just isn't worth it. It's a price we can't pay in order to implement social democracy in this country. Yeah, there is a connection at every level. I'll tell, I'll tell one story in the book, which was a... I don't want to say it was a highlight of the 2017 election campaign because that would appear to make light of a tragic event. But you'll recall the terrorist attack in Manchester, Ariana Grande concert, uh, you know, 20 plus young people died after a, uh, an Islamist terrorist blew himself up. And campaigning was suspended for two or three days. But then when it was to resume, we had to think about what we were going to say about that. And we, ha we had big discussions uh, about it. The conventional thing would just be to say, this guy's a, a bastard, we must stand strong against terrorism, support the police and everything else. 
I certainly argued with others that we had to do something more profound and, in a way, more adult. We could say all of that. We had to condemn the terrorists, and he alone bore responsibility for his actions, or he and those who may have immediately supported him. But we had to say that this shows that the war on terror has failed, and that there is a connection between the persistence of terrorist attacks in Britain and our conduct of foreign policy in the recent past. Doesn't excuse the terrorism, doesn't justify it, but unless we address that, we are not going to make the world a safer place. Now, Jeremy came down on that side of the argument. Obviously, he made the speech, and everyone, I mean, including people, some of our nearest and dearest, said this is a dreadful mistake. You know, we should just start to the conventional bromides with which you always use when there's one of these terrible atrocities. Tory party were out there saying, Corbyn blames Britain for terrorism. An opinion poll on the day Jeremy made the speech. Do you think he is right to attribute some responsibility to British foreign policy for the terrorist attack? 70% said, yes, he's right. Tories dropped it immediately. They dropped it completely because people could understand they'd lived through the Iraq war, the occupation of Afghanistan, and they'd probably even noticed the disasters following on from the intervention in Libya which, of course, the guy was, was Libyan himself, or Libyan origin himself. And they, they know there's a connection. Doesn't mean they excuse it or they, they, they think it's you know, in any way acceptable. But they can understand that the policy of wars of intervention had failed. And Jeremy said that, and people were mature enough to, to say, yes, he's right. You know, that, that again is a point of a connection between our foreign policy and what happens uh, here. And in the sort of world more tightly knit together that we've been living through, um, that's more true than ever. Hmm. Well, I want to kind of get you talking a little bit about what you think the path to socialism is, what you think the future for the left is. Do you think it runs through the Labour Party or not? Which is a question I think a lot of people are grappling with. So to quote the book... You say, a momentum organiser, Harriet Soltani, who was a colleague of mine when I was on the Momentum NCG until recently, <laughs> who argues that the organisation should refocus on direct political interventions outside of Labour's inter internal agonies. Creating a movement that stretches across <laughs> workplaces and communities is on the right track. The synthesis of the union's social weight with the vibrancy and initiative of the mass movements against austerity, war, climate change and more remains the holy grail of left politics. Corbynism was a taste of it. So do you think that that is the future for the left? Is that what we should be doing? And kind of how do we get there? Well, I think the left can only be strong if it is implanted in the concerns of ordinary people. If it's not campaigning about the cost of living crisis preeminently now, then it's not going to be strong or relevant to lots of people. Prior to Jeremy's election, the left's greatest relevance to people this century had been when it was campaigning against the war uh, in Iraq, uh, against austerity, when that started being implemented by Cameron and uh, Osborne. And there were organisations doing all these things. One obviously would talk about Extinction Rebellion or Black Lives Matter uh, on different you know, aspects of how the crisis impacts on ordinary people, both in the here and now and in a more strategic sense like climate change. And a left that is powerful on those things can then address the question of how do we give us a political articulation on a much firmer basis, uh, in my view. So yes, if you have the trade union movement 
and the social movements allied. I mean, if you're founding the Labour Party again now, you wouldn't do it in the way it was done 120 years ago. It wouldn't be just the big trade unions. You would be looking to uh, other organisations and movements to form part of that federated structure. So bringing that uh, together and for the left to be relevant uh, to people in, in the day-to-day -day needs. Like I take example, food banks. This is something that's bugged me for a, a while. Everyone condemns the fact that food banks are necessary. Okay, they shouldn't be necessary in a properly functioning society. But rather than just condemning their existence, you know, the left should be down at food banks trying to organise the people that are forced to use them, you know, to fight for their rights and to come together in groups in the community. Even if only one in ten food bank user feels they want to do that, it's, it's a start, it's a beginning. And then, you know, you're in a position you can actually put pressure on politicians, uh, you know, because they start to get worried about what will happen if they uh, ignore you. Now, whether the Labour Party is the answer or not, it's certainly not the the main vehicle which you get to socialism, the main vehicle you get to socialism is people organising for themselves in the workplaces and in their communities, getting a sense of their own power and uh, strength. At election time, I think at the moment, it's going to be the main option where people will vote for it in most constituencies. And I think there'll be a huge desire to get rid of the Conservative Party at the next election. And Keir Starmer may be the entirely unjustified beneficiary of that. But I think, in a way, I mean, the Labour Party is not, is not the holy grail. And if people are active in the Labour Party, and many people obviously are going to stay, you know, they have to try and reflect on the problems that we encountered from within the Labour Party in the Corbyn period, the MPs, and something I've not really mentioned before, are the full-time apparatus of the party whose behaviour was shameful. I mean, not just the attitudes they expressed were to the right of society, never mind the right of the Labour Party, uh, and their obstruction of the leadership. You know, one has to think about how one is going to address that better next time. I think the left has to embed itself in the concerns of the uh, ordinary people of this country, or it's going to be marginal. Hmm. After the 2019 election, I was like trying to learn more about socialism, trying to learn more about what had happened, why, how would we do things differently. So I went away and I read Ralph Miliband and I read Lenin, Trotsky, Rosa Luxemburg, Malcolm X, Franz Fanon, etc. Trying to find the answers. So should we all join the Communist Party? That's what I want to know. I don't think that's realistic, but uh, I think people will have to find different ways depending on you know where they. Uh, work, where they live, what their capacities or, or interests are to contribute. But there's certainly something there for everyone. That was Andrew Murray and Darren McLaughlin on Radicals and Conversation in-house. You can find out more about the book on bookhousebristol.com, along with details about their other forthcoming events, many of which will appear in this podcast series in due course. If you enjoy the show, then please don't forget to share, rate it and review it wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be back soon with episode 58 of our regular panel show. So until then, thank you for listening and goodbye.